chapter 3. Kingstown, a prosperous suburb of Dublin, 1908. There is a part of the garden by the cluster of sycamores, near the bend in the drive where the gravel is wearing thin. And if he stands there quietly on a still Sunday morning, when none of the servants is around to annoy him, and when mother is up in her room at her scriptures, he can hear the distant approach of the train from Dublin, the wind-borne shush and chug that means she might be coming to him again. He is 36 now, already very ill. Painful years have passed since he stopped believing he could be loved. The power of what is happening terrifies him. He leaves his mother's garden, makes hurriedly for Glenageary Station, up the willow-lined avenue towards St. Paul's, Church of Ireland, past the entrance to the quarry lanes known locally as the Metals, through which the granites were hefted long ago for the stanchions of Kingstown Pier. There are days when he feels hammered his breathing sometimes knifes him, but punctuality is important, a sign of respect. The walk from his mother's house takes about seven minutes. Often he arrives as the locomotive is chuntering to its screechy standstill and belching grimy spumes of cinders and mizzle. He skulks in the station portico, not daring to hope lowering his eyes quickly if a neighbour happens past. It would not do to be seen, not yet, not here. There is the age difference between them, but that is not all. There are the differences that cannot be noticed in an instant. And then, where can she be? She materialises through the smoke. There she is, beckoning circumspectly from a second-class window. It is like a small moment out of Tolstoy, perhaps. One of those seemingly simple but reverberating images he values in the novels of Russia. He pictures her stepping down through the vapour, the soot, then hurrying along the platform to him, parasol in hand. She comes to him through the filth, her face hopeful and kind, the steam moistening a strand of hair to her forehead. But this cannot happen. People might see. There would be talk around Glenageary. Instead, he boards the train, takes the bench opposite her in the carriage. They're like a couple of collaborators plotting an act of treason. Outside, the conductor is slamming the doors. A whistle is blown. A green flag is flourished. As the engine gives a shriek, and they judder away from Glenageary, he begins to feel something like relief. From the pocket of her raincoat is protruding a play script. She uses the journey from the city to learn her lines. And nobody could say she is beautiful exactly, but she is an actress. She is able to decide whether to be beautiful or plain. Like a changeling, he calls her, his preferred endearment like many sweet nothings, an ambiguity. The train clatters into the tunnel at Kalini. He is alone with her in darkness. He feels her hand steal into his. This thrills him, charges him. No one can see. 
The moment passes quickly. There is a dazzle of light and the panorama of the bay is magnificent, Italian. Along the cliff tops at Shangana, a cormorant hangs in the air. It will not be too long before they come coasting into Bray, where nobody knows him. Bray is safe. Passers-by might think them a father and daughter as they exit Bray Station and she links him at the elbow. And they go walking down the promenade in the direction of Bray Head through a swirl of dirty gulls and old newspapers. He looks older than his years. She looks younger than hers. He has achieved some recognition in the field of play writing. Translations of two of his works have been performed in Prague and Berlin. He is co-director of the Irish National Theatre Society. But few in this frumpy little Brighton would know he was a writer, and fewer, if they knew, would care. His companion has appeared in three of his plays, bit parts at first, but she was soon elevated to leads, past cold grey wavelets breaking on the stones, past the suck in the runnels of Strand. When she came in with her sister, he was standing near the bookcase in the downstairs rehearsal room, wearing a burgundy velvet smoking jacket that looked as though it had once belonged to someone larger. A peasant man's neckerchief draped loosely about the collar, a tuft of withering heather in the lapel. His eyes ranged everywhere except upon the assembled actors, whose presence seemed to embarrass him as though a fuss were being made. Lady Gregory had introduced him. John Singh, our friend, a coming giant of the drama, a veritable Shakespeare. It appeared that each commendation was another nail through his heart. He flushed to the maroon of his jacket. His hair was black and glossy, pomaded a little too heavily, and yet it was untidy too, like a ploughboy's. The strangeness and yet the beauty of his mode of speech. He made even plummy Yeats seem down to earth. His accent was of the Protestant Dublin suburbs, modulated, deaconish, replete with correctitude, but complicated by an Irishry that felt very slightly overemphasised, as one note that wanted damping in a gorgeous chord. The soft Dublin T in the way he pronounced the word Theatre, the long Etonian vowels in drama. He addressed the gathering for ten minutes, checking the allotted time on his fob watch, rarely meeting anyone's stare. Similes, self-contradictions, allusions to Gaelic fairy tales of the West, quotations from French novels and dusty Greek myths. He took it for granted that everyone knew what he meant. The actors were a little afraid of him, and he of them. He never met your eyes unless he wished to. She walked the longer way home that evening, across Sackville Street, down the Quays, past the junk shop above which she had been born, past the bookstalls and the boarding houses, for already she had come to a point where the ghetto life of Mary Street could only be endured by postponing it. A squabble was stewing in the house about money, the rent. A black pot in the kitchen seemed to bubble with rage, its lid clicking furiously on the rim. 
She had gone immediately to the little bedroom she shared with her sisters and grandmother, looked for a long time over the yard at the rear of the tenement. Boys had found an abandoned piebald and tethered it near the ash pits where it was feeding from a rusted bathtub. The tolling of the quarter to eight bell from Mary's Abbey coaxed the slaughterers from the market, their grey overalls reddened in silent twos and threes to the pub and the sky reddening too, and the steeples slowly blackening, and the siren from the gas works through the rain. Sarah had not come home by supper time. There was a Francis Street boy she liked, and she was bankrupting the poor fellow, a junior clerk in Crosby and Elaine, by making him take her to dine at Burton's. The nightly rosary came and went. It grew dark in the bedroom. Shadows lengthened and disappeared. She dreamed she was in the junk shop on a Saturday afternoon, assisting her mother with the customers, endlessly opening drawers in old sideboards, the faded green felt of their linings. A woman who might have been Lady Gregory had passed on the quay, but it was hard to be certain through the rain-spattered window. When she awoke, it was dark. Sarah was asleep beside her, the little ones curled in the foot of the bed. She could hear the repeated triple-toned bark of a dog. Her mother's only coat had been placed over her. Next morning, as she was walking to rehearsal, she saw him near the general post office in Sackville Street, as still as a lamp post and staring up at a rooftop his battered tweed tam and drover's muddy boots, giving him the appearance of a countryman lost. His scarf looked as though it had once been employed to mop up a stable after a flood. Was it a bird he was looking at? A steeplejack working? Lord Nelson on his pillar, perhaps? A nun passed him quizzically, herself glancing up at the sky before continuing her progress towards the river. He raised a hand to shade his gaze. He looked frail, older than yesterday. Perhaps the nervousness of having to address them had rushed blood to his face. Now it was the colour of ashes. Mr Singh, sir, she'd said apprehensively. Are you all right? Is that yourself? the fragility and gentleness of his face as he turned to her. Forgive me, miss, do I know you? His eyes moving fitfully, as though he'd been listening to strange music in the halls of his mind and it had altered its tempo or stopped. Miss O'Neill, sir, Molly O'Neill, I work at the theatre. At the theatre, you say? Well, that is a nice pancake. At the Abbey, sir, yes. I'm one of the apprentice players. You were in with us yesterday. Are you quite all right? Oh, entirely, he said. I was just daydreaming. I was thinking about Germany. Were you ever in Germany at all? I was never out of Dublin, sir. Have you been there yourself? Interesting sort of place, Germany, he said. The music and so on. Would you like to have a plum? I bought some in Moor Street patting his overcoat pockets and searching inside his jacket. Oh, Moses, he said, I seem to have mislaid them somehow. 
Are you going to the theatre now, sir? Yes, I am. May I walk with you? Of course, sir. I have to hurry along, but... There was an enormous storm cloud, he said. It has passed now, which reminded me of Cologne Cathedral, the exact silhouette, quite remarkable. They say the devil appeared there once. Do you believe in the devil? My mother does be saying it isn't that gentleman, but the living we'd be wise to fear, sir. I dare say that's right, he smiled. What did you say you were called? I'm so sorry, didn't catch it. I was away with the fairies. Molly Allgood is my given name, sir. I go by Moira O'Neill. Ah, yes, I have you now. You are Sally's sister, I think. I am, sir. I believe... Sally will be a very great artist, likely far too good for Ireland. Tell me, do you and your family call her Sally or Sarah? Sally, sir, though she's been called worse now and again in the house. I'm sorry, I was making a joke, sir, about Sally. Ah, he said, quite, a joke. I have you now, please forgive me. For what, sir? Well, for being... Such a silly muff and not recognising you and whatnot. I'm not at all good with faces, but I remember your voice. It is beautiful, most musical. I was thinking about it yesterday evening. You have a voice of some potential. Have you ever considered singing lessons? Lessons? I haven't, sir, no. Well, if you take my advice, you will do. It would be a string to your bow. Thank you, sir. I will. I like singing. Lovely, he said. That little verse of Yeats you were speaking in the break quite brought it to life for me. Hadn't truly got it before. Terribly good on the stars and so on, old Yeats, isn't he? <laughs> he is, sir. Yes, he said. Old Yeats does the stars. I do everything else. <laughs> he smiled shyly. Little joke of my own. Thank you.